Well, good morning again. Uh, Today we are in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're continuing our sermon series in 1 Peter titled, Living as Elect Exiles. And in this text, God is going to continue telling us what it means to live as elect exiles. We've been given new birth in Christ. We have a new identity as Christians. We are children of God and precious in the sight of God. But we are also exiles in this world. Because of our Christianity, we have been alienated and estranged from those who don't know Jesus. And so Peter is telling us how we are to live in that context, in the context of the world around us. Two weeks ago, he talked about submitting to the civil government and honoring the emperor. Last week, he told Christian slaves that they were to endure even if they suffered for doing good. Importantly, he connected us to Jesus, the suffering servant who didn't sin when he was reviled and mocked and sinned against. Instead, he endured and entrusted himself to God. And this week, Peter gives us the final of these three sections that begin with be subject to or submit to. This week, he's going to talk to Christian wives, especially Christian wives who have husbands who are not Christians. And then he's going to say a word to Christian husbands in verse 7. And this text today is going to be difficult for a few reasons. But one reason why it's especially going to be difficult is because God asks much of us. He asks hard things of us. Jesus' commands for the Christian life are hard. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Lay down your life. Consider the interests of others more important than your own. And this call to endure, even when marriage is difficult, isn't different. It's also a hard task. But we must remember, as we hear the law, as we hear what we are called to as Christians, what we heard at the end of our text last week. In this call to endure in the midst of suffering, Peter says this, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. This is what we've been hearing again and again from Peter, that our salvation is not just meant to forgive us of our sins, but our salvation is meant to bring us into new life. Christ died. He bore our sins so that we might die to our sin and live to righteousness. So as we hear the commands of God, the sometimes hard commands of God, we always must remind ourselves that this text today, no different than any other text in Scripture, is the Word of the Lord. It is living and active and pierces to the division of soul and marrow. It has no error or mistakes. In fact, it comes to us 
and corrects our errors and our mistakes about who we are and what will make us happy. Like all of God's Word, it is the path of life. So we should thank God for it. And in humility, we should ask for His help as we hear it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read Your Holy Word, I ask that You would give us Your Spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know Your Son, Jesus Christ, better. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we might hear Your Word and believe it. Overcome our stubborn hearts and show us Your path of life. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. As we work our way through this text this morning, we're going to notice three things. First, we're going to look at this word that begins our text and then shows up again in verse 7, likewise, or in the same way. Second, we're going to see a word to the wives. And then thirdly, uh, we're going to see a word to the husbands. Let's begin with the very first word in this passage, likewise, or in the same way. Shows up again in verse 7 when Peter begins addressing the Christian husbands. And that word or that phrase draws us back to our text from last week, our passage from last week. Verse 18 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. That phrase, with all respect, tells us the way or the attitude that servants or slaves are to have toward their masters. And the presence of the word likewise, or in the same way, in our passage today, shows us that that attitude carries over for the way that wives should relate to their husbands, and the way that husbands should relate to their wives, with all respect. But it also does something at a more foundational level. The order that Peter is addressing Christians in these last several verses is very important for us. It's a subversive way of Peter approaching the culture around him. Peter begins addressing Christians by addressing slaves. And then he outlines the Christian life with reference to slaves. Then he builds on that teaching with Christian wives and then Christian husbands, both in much shorter sections. 
both in the order that Peter approaches this and in what Peter says, he has made the slave the foundational character of the Christian life. What is the paradigm for the Christian life? Slavery, Peter tells us. He said this even when he was speaking generally in verse 16. What are Christians to do? Live as people who are free, he says, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants or slaves of God. The paradigm of the Christian life is the life of a slave. That is the primary picture that Peter gives us of our Christian life. When he looks around at the different roles in society, kings, soldiers, children, wives, husbands, he picks out slavery and says, that's the one that looks the most like the life of a Christian. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are willing and happy slaves to God. Peter pointed last week to the example of Jesus who was high in power and authority, but willingly made himself a slave. Peter says this is what the Christian life is like. It's giving up your rights, giving up your interests for the interests and the good of others. He makes the life of a slave foundational and then says that Christian wives and Christian husbands are like that. Likewise, in the same way, and to every Christian, likewise, your life is like that. Brothers and sisters, do you live a life of willing submission to God? Before we ever talk about distinct roles and relationships in the Christian life, we must talk about that. So then, to wives, he says, likewise, or in the same way, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. When speaking to wives, Peter gives a general statement, very similar to the statements he made in verses 13 and 18. Wives, be subject to or submit to your own husbands. And then he gives a very specific scenario. The scenario of a Christian wife whose husband is not a Christian. That's what he means when he talks about the fact that the husband does not obey the word. And he says that in that scenario, the wife should still be subject to her husband. Why? So that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see a respectful and pure conduct. Peter sets up from the beginning the goal, the hope that your unbelieving husband would believe in Jesus. That God would call him out of darkness and into his marvelous light, that he would forgive his sins, change his heart, and give him new life in Christ. There are certainly some of you who have been longing for that for years. Maybe your husband professed faith for a time and then walked away. Maybe he has never been a Christian and has held your attempts to share Christ at arm's length. Whatever it is, God is encouraging you to endure for the sake of His salvation. And He is holding out hope that He would be saved. And when you ask how, how in the world would that ever happen? 
Peter says it's going to happen when your husband sees your respectful and pure conduct. This is the same thing Peter has been saying for the last 20 verses. Christian, you are an exile in this world. You are a stranger and an alien in this society. And because of that, there are people who are opposed to you. Chapter 2, verse 11 says that they speak against you as evildoers. In verse 20, he says that they cause you to suffer, not for doing evil, but for doing good. We know that those ebb and flow. Some of us experience more of that and some less. But now he is talking about the situation where you find yourself to be in exile in your own home. And in response to that difficulty, you are to endure in doing good and living a holy life. This, God tells us, is how you are going to convert those who reject Jesus by letting them see your changed life. Now, this is a situation that would be true for husbands who have unbelieving wives as well. I believe much of this applies in the opposite scenario, but this was particularly challenging for a wife whose husband wasn't a Christian. In Greco-Roman society, it was the social expectation that a wife would just take the religion of her husband, that she would share the same God. The Roman philosopher Plutarch says this, A wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Therefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in. And so a wife was already in danger of being charged with disrupting the social order by converting to Christianity. Not only would she have a different religion, and if she were faithful, she would refuse to worship her husband's gods, but the hallmark of the Christian life is weekly participation in Christian worship. This means that she has a community, a group of friends, a family, as Scripture tells us, who are not the same as her husband's. This was a big deal. Notice that Peter does not include those things under the category of being subject to her husband. We talked about this last or two weeks ago when we saw that governmental authority has limits. The limits of the authority of the husband are that even when Peter says something so stark as that Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord, if a husband demanded that his wife reject Christianity, or said something like, it's fine if you have your private religion, but I forbid you from living that way publicly, she must say no. In that situation, she has to say with Peter in Acts 5, I must obey God rather than men. But this shows how careful and nuanced God is in the commands that He gives us. Our tendency, all of us, is to be an all-or-nothing people. If a wife realizes she can't submit to her husband in one area, even an area as important as which God she serves, she has a tendency to reject her husband wholesale. But Peter says no. Even for a husband who is not a Christian, God's command is still that she be subject to her husband. 
In fact, he says that your submission to him and your good conduct may be a tool God uses to bring about his conversion. And before we move on to see what he says about the life that God is calling these wives to, I think it's worth addressing an assumption that Peter is making. Some of you may be sitting there thinking, that is ridiculous. Why doesn't she just divorce him if he's going to insist on being a tyrant to her? Our culture thinks that divorce is the answer to any difficulty. And too often, we in the church don't look much different. But the Bible is explicit about divorce in general, and even about the very situation Peter is addressing here, where one spouse is a Christian and the other is not. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 12, and 13. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Divorce is not an option just because your husband or wife is unkind, or turns out to be selfish, or even because they aren't a Christian. The Bible teaches that divorce is only permissible because of sexual immorality, and Paul also includes abandonment in that same 1 Corinthians 7 passage that we just looked at. But it is amazing how many hard things can happen in a marriage that do not allow for divorce. Even your spouse being hostile to Christianity. Instead, God says, you should live with them and endure the difficulties and sufferings that brings, and still love them in the way that God has called you to love your spouse. Many of you are in this situation, and you still love your spouse dearly, but you know it is not easy to be married to someone who is not a Christian. So you long for God to save them, to bring them to faith in Jesus. So let's see what Peter says in this passage about how God commands you to live in the midst of that longing. Look at these verses again with me. He says, Even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now there is a lot there, and we're not going to be able to touch on all of it especially since we still need to say what, see what God says to the husbands. But I want you to see the gist of Peter's argument. He knows that you as a wife want your husband to trust in Jesus. But he says that you aren't going to do it by nonstop arguing and debating. That's what he means when he says that they may be one without a word. He doesn't literally mean that you never say a word about Jesus to your husband. Later in this chapter, in verse 15, he says that we should all be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
We must be ready, all of us, to explain what we believe and why we believe it. But Peter's follow-up is, yet do it with gentleness and respect. One thing Peter is trying to guard against in this section is a wife who thinks that her many words and her persistent words will change her husband. And so she keeps at him and keeps at him. Instead, Peter says, you ought to put the emphasis on your conduct. Live in a way that causes him to ask for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter also says that you shouldn't put all your attention on the way you look. He says in verse 3, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Then he tells you how to adorn yourself and where your attention should be. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Peter calls women to cultivate a certain kind of beauty. There is a temptation for all people, but it seems to be particularly a challenge for women to cultivate physical beauty and sometimes more than spiritual beauty. Our sinful hearts tell us to assess our worth by what our face and our body look like. But God tells you that He is looking at what your life looks like. A gentle and quiet spirit. That's not an introverted personality type. Gentle is meekness and humility, just as Jesus describes Himself in Matthew 11. And quiet is not timid, but peaceable. You don't lash out in retaliation, but you humbly and peaceably endure, endure even when it is difficult. Notice that last phrase in verse 4, which in God's sight is very precious. When you are tempted to put all your time and attention into your looks, you are doing it to be seen. Notice that this kind of woman has the eye of God upon her. He looks at her, and she is precious to him. Sister, is your attention on your looks and your body and whether men would call you pretty? Or are you cultivating the fruit of the Spirit and the character of a godly woman? We want to be careful not to make this contrast out to be more than God does. The one example he gives of this kind of woman is Sarah, Abraham's wife. Sarah in Genesis 12 is explicitly described as a woman beautiful in appearance. This helps us see that this is not a command to try to look bad. No, it's a command to love godliness more than beauty. Sister, do you hate gossip more than you hate wrinkles? Do you love compassion and patience more than you love a good hair day or weight loss? Let your attention be taken up in cultivating holiness. I believe the point that Peter is trying to make is that the greatest gift you could give your husband is your holiness. He's not going to see your striking good looks and long to know Jesus more. 
He's not going to be, see your fashionable clothing and want to know the reason for the hope that is in you. Those things will only come when He sees your changed heart and your changed life. A life that could only come by the Holy Spirit. Peter's final note says that you are Sarah's children. If you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. There are plenty of fears that come from being in a difficult marriage. What if our kids follow his rejection of Jesus instead of my faith in Jesus? What if he pulls me away from Jesus? Am I going to waste my life by sticking it out in this marriage? There are plenty of things that are frightening. In this, you are not just to follow Sarah, you are also to follow Jesus. When he suffered, he continued entrusting himself to his Father who judges justly. Dear sister, let your trust in Jesus and his faithfulness be stronger than your fears. We turn now to verse 7, where Peter turns to address the husbands. He does so very briefly, but he says quite a bit. Please read verse 7 with me. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. First, remember that the word likewise connects these husbands back to the wives that Peter just addressed in verse 1 and to the slaves that he addressed in chapter 2, verse 18. All of them are to live with all respect to those around them. For the husband, that is respect for your wife. As we'll see in a minute, it looks like Peter is addressing a, wife, a husband whose wife is a Christian. And Peter tells him that he is to live with his wife in an understanding way. Literally, he is to live with her according to knowledge. You should seek to know your wife. This comes right on the heels of Peter's comment about a woman not being afraid of all that is frightening. Husband, do you know your wife's fears? Do you know what it is that keeps her up at night? And do you have compassion on her in those areas? Are you dismissive? Or are you sensitive to those fears? Peter says that your role as a husband is to know your wife. The next phrase is the one that can be a little off-putting at first read. Peter says that a husband ought to also show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And the first thing some of you might have thought is, what is that supposed to mean? It sounds a bit demeaning. Like women are somehow less than men. But notice that Peter says that a husband is to show the woman honor because of this trait. So it can't be something undesirable or something that is lacking in a woman. Instead, it seems pretty clear from the wording that Peter is talking about physical strength. By and large, the vessel that men live in, our bodies, are bigger faster, and stronger than women. This is what Peter is referring to. And it is to the shame of men that we have often used our physical strength to hurt women and threaten them 
instead of protecting them. Peter says that this difference ought to cause us to show women, especially our wives, honor or value. If there were any wonder whether this phrase was meant to be demeaning to women, to put them on a lower plane, the next phrase banishes that possibility. Peter says to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. There is a lot of talk about roles within marriage and the relationship between the submission that the wife is called to and the authority or leadership that a husband is called to. Those are important roles that God is explicit about in Scripture. But Peter tells us that there is a more fundamental relationship between the husband and wife. There's one that is more basic than authority and submission. It's the fact that you are joint heirs together of the grace of life. The inheritance that Peter talked about in chapter 1 that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading belongs to both of you. The new birth you have been given in Christ and the new identity belongs to both of you. You are both called to suffer. You are both called to be holy. You are both living stones built up into God's spiritual house, the church. Both of you are called to live as exiles in this world, but to endure so that others might come to know Jesus. You are both free from slavery to sin, but called to live as slaves to God. This is the relationship that is the most fundamental to a believing husband and wife. And the moment the husband forgets this, the moment he forgets that the primary reason he has been given spiritual authority, he misses it. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husband, you have been given authority so that you might love your wife so that you might apply the promises of God to her fears, so that you might apply the comfort of God's Word to her hurts, so that you might help her cultivate the godliness that God has called her to and tell her how beautiful that godliness is when you see it grow in her. Husbands, God has given us a glorious calling and privilege. Your wife is a co-heir with you of the grace of life. Treat her in that way. The final note Peter ends on is not a particularly happy one. It's a threat. He tells us what will happen if we don't honor our wives, if we don't work to understand them, if we don't remember that they are our co-heirs. He tells us that our prayers will be hindered. One of the amazing privileges of the Christian is that we are able to come into the throne room of grace and pray to our God that He gives ear to our prayers. But we should never presume upon that privilege. God does not give us free reign to live how we will and treat each other however we want and then strut into His presence. 
He threatens that He will hinder our prayers when we live that way. Brothers and sisters, this is not enough to be said about marriage. There is both great hope and great hurt in the realm of marriage. God tells us that when we hurt our spouse and persist in it, it is so serious that He might close His ear to us for a time. And God also tells us that by our conduct, we might proclaim the glories of the gospel even to our spouse. In all of this, we have the same call to humility and the embracing of suffering that God continues to put on our lives. Jesus Himself bore your sins in His body on the tree that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Would you all pray with me? Father, we ask Your mercy. We ask Your forgiveness of the times that we have sinned in all ways, but especially this morning against our spouses. Lord, we pray that You would forgive us, that You would renew us in Your image so that we might love as You have called us to love. Fill us with Your Holy Spirit that we might die to our sin and live to righteousness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.